0: So I, so I just got reprimanded by, m- literally my family because my shorts are too long, which I don't think they are. They literally come just below, like maybe a half an inch below my knee, and everyone's like, "Those are, those are man shorts. Those are like capris." No. I'm like, "How are they capris? A capri comes they're... down to your, your <laughs> shit." Basically pedophile trousers. If oh my kind of
1: god. <laughs> Hello. I'm Nipper Reed and I'm Phil Wolf. So settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy
0: the Venomous Exchange radio podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy. In this episode, we speak with Scott and Ty Iper about their new book, Australasian Lapids Husbandry, Captive Care, and Ecology. Through their countless years of hands on experience and worldly education, the Ipers have compiled what is now considered by most to be the future template for all reptile enthusiast literature. The Ipers elegantly orchestrate an abundance of field herping knowledge, care and maintenance in captivity, range maps, and in depth bionomics. And in my opinion, they've truly bridged the gap between desired reference and a genuine field guide. But with five hundred and seventy-five pages and over a thousand photographs, you may not want to carry it around too much. Now, without further ado, Scott and ty iper I've seen your knees, Phil. You've got you've got lovely knees. You should show them to the world. Oh, thank you, thank you. They're always so dirty. (laughs) I know, that's what I like about them uh well ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages this is venom exchange radio episode number 10 10 freaking episodes nip nip
1: i know it's ridiculous i'll put up with you for this long
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's good but today today tonight well, can't talk because it's early for me but it's late for them our friends on the other side of the world the Ipers. hello hi good- how you go so Episode 10. We gotta make it monumental. And we did with what's that, Neb? No, I was gonna say we did make it monumental because we got the Ipers on. We do, we have the Ipers on, <laughs> and I'm holding a book, a book I've waited a very, very long time for. It is very, very soft to the touch, it's very thick, full of beautiful pictures, exquisite knowledge. Australasian elapids Husbandry, Captive Care, and Ecology by the Ipers.
1: Epic, epic! What a tomb! Love it.
2: <laughs> you can use it as a doorstop.
1: You could. Getting, you could
2: choke it, a horse with this
0: book.
1: someone with it. Pretty simply. It, it's <laughs> I currently on my. Like. <laughs> it's currently on my bedside cabinet. In case I get burgled in the night, I can use it for home defense. <laughs>
2: I was gonna say, does Ali use it as a
1: step in the kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> she could
3: oh, do. Ali, I'm for you.
1: Oh mate, you're so brave when she's not here. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not gonna listen to this either, so it's all good. No, nah, she, she does actually. She
2: will. <laughs> <laughs>
0: especially, especially when I pull that audio clip as like the promo reel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so
1: Five foot of angry, angry Essex girl after you. Not a good thing. <laughs> very, very scary. Uh, that's if right. that's what it
2: takes to get you bastards to Oz, then so be
1: Hundred percent. Oh, mate, we want to come.
0: Yeah, we want to come definitely.
2: Um, uh, yeah. So this has so, been a bit of a, a monumental affair. We've got we're literally about three. We're in positions that are about as far apart across the globe as we probably could get.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's for a log- me, logistical
1: nightmare, but we love it. For me, it's, it's it's a lovely time of day for me. This is lunchtime. It's it's sunny. It's <laughs> about it's about fifteen degrees. It's lovely. Birds are singing.
2: So in other words, it's stinking hot for you guys.
1: Yeah, mate, I'm sweating
2: out here. I mean, it's fifteen degrees. I'm panicking. <laughs> so, do you reckon that you're going to change prime ministers by the end of today, or is that going to be scheduled for tomorrow?
1: No, oh, mate. I they changing prime ministers more than I'm changing my underwear at the minute. I don't even get involved. I just play with my snakes in my snake building. That's all I give a shit about. Wow,
2: nuts. Anyway, fun and games. Yeah. So, um, we wrote a book.
0: You guys wrote uh, a book. Yeah, hell of a book.
1: Yeah. So how how Um, was the process of? I mean, I know we spoke to Ty earlier on, but. From your perspective, yeah. don't be frightened because she sat next to you. Well, how was, the, <laughs> how was the process of writing a? I mean, it's not just a book, is it? it it's not like a pamphlet. It is an epic, epic book. It's massive.
0: It's um, a what, book that all other books will be of this genre will be modelled after, in my opinion.
1: Oh, 100 percent! It is definitely, definitely the benchmark work for a long, long time. It'll outsee you two. No worries. Um, Wait, I, I suppose. I suppose what,
2: I I did a similar book to this, and I, I wrote it, you know, the better part of uh, 2010, 2011. So, you know, that, that was written, you know, obviously about 12 years ago. And the, the whole idea of that was to write the book that I would have wanted when I was first getting into venomous keeping. And... You know, it, it the whole series, that whole series, the keeping and the, the guide to series that that came out. Um, you had Danny Brown did some books on lizards, uh, Adam Elliott did books on turtles and pythons, and then I did frogs and uh, snakes and colubrids, a so venomous snakes and colubrids. And the whole idea of it was, we had a book that basically people could pick up and go, if you want to keep this, this is how you're going to do it. Um, it took. About six years or so, and after six years, those books all were well and truly out of print. And people are going, "Oh, you're going to do a revised edition?" Da 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 da. Long story cut in half. We decided that it was it was going to take too long to try and do a revised edition. Um, the publisher didn't really wasn't really interested in doing it, and so we were like, "All right, well." That's fine We'll sort of Leave it be And, and then You know I, I get Comments And people would sort of Hit me up And going Hey What's the chances Of You know Can you send us A copy of the book Or can you send us Some information Or, or, something, or something Or other That um, was one of them I was just like <laughs> And I just used to Send people copies Of, of bits and pieces out of, the, out of the book So if they wanted Something on Death Adders I'd just send it to them If they wanted something on on black snakes, I'd send it to them or whatever, and I was forever having to go, yeah, but this is how we did it, how I did it ten years ago or whatever it was, and now I do things slightly differently, and this is what I'd, I'd recommend, etc. So I sort of got the shits a bit with it in the end, and I was sitting around here with with Ty and a couple of other people, and we had this conversation, and they said, well, why don't you just bloody redo it? I was like, oh, really? And then. Like oh yeah alright bugger it. so we cracked on and I said right if we're going to do it let's do it differently and let's add all of the bits and pieces into it that um, we would have liked to have included in the first book that we didn't um, and we wanted to include some species in it that you know are from that are more commonly kept overseas as well and. I wanted to make sure that Ty was giving us a lot of import into it as well, because at the end of the day, she's been keeping these animals with me for the better part of what, 15 odd years now. So um, Don't ever tell
3: me off for not remembering our anniversary.
2: <laughs> so so Ty's been keeping these animals for 20 years. And before that, she would, she had a uh, snake collection as well. So, you know, because we had these... Ideas we were like right. Let's put it to put it down. So that's what we did. And so we set out to well and truly revamp. But then I wanted to add all the bits and pieces to it that I didn't get to do the first time around So
1: that's what we did. Did Did you have a publisher in mind before when you started working? Because obviously you went with Chimera, which is a, a very well known, yep. uh, very well respected European publisher. Um, but they have a certain, most Chimera books have a certain layout and a certain format. Did did you have that format in mind or did your format just happen to fit in with how Chimera produces?
2: I I picked up the old world Vipers book by the late Tony Phelps. Um, And I also picked up uh, Asian Pit Vipers by Dick Visser. And, I really liked both of those books, and so did Ty. We'd already had some some Chimera publications. He's on a bit of a book hoard, as Ty is as well. We both like our books, and so we already had a number of these books anyway. And we liked a lot of the things that the, the Chimera publications represented. Um, we liked the fact that there was some flexibility. Um, and you now, at the end of the day, they're they're sort of the top echelon for the for the reptile keepers that are out there, you know, everyone who's who's into reptile books knows of the Chimera books and knows oh, of the yeah. sort of quality they put out. So um we basically put together a bit of a proposal. We we put together a species account and flipped it across and said, What do you think? And um they said, Yeah, can you do it in twelve months? No. <laughs> and <then we're> like, <laughs> Cheers uh okay well it looks like we're going to be very busy um yeah and so it, it's interesting that the dynamic the time i have we're, we're quite different people when it comes to how we approach a task
3: oh very eloquently
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> i am quite meticulous when it comes to planning and you know
3: Anal is probably the better word. Yeah, right? anally retentive is
2: probably a better way of phrasing it. Um, and the reality of it is, is that uh, I will set up a spreadsheet. I will articulate all of the things that I need to tick off to try and get across that to the point where how I'm going to get things peer reviewed, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera, timelines, etc., and, Basically, push myself with a whole heap of deadlines. Ty.
3: Ask us our
2: way through it. <laughs> oh, Ty decides if going to do a bit on this and then a bit on this and a bit on this and a bit on this, this. And so when I ask the question, where are you up to? Oh, well, I've done this and this and, and, and I, I nearly have an aneurysm each time. So I've learned to stop asking. Um, and. It's it's better for my stress levels, I suppose. But, um, look, it, it gets there in the end. We get it done. And I, yeah. I think the, the beauty of it is, is that because we have such a different approach to things. Um,
3: he concentrates on one thing and I'll focus on something else that he probably wouldn't have thought to put in or something like that. And it yeah. just works.
1: So, yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how many species are actually made it into the book? There's 60, 60 species accounts. 60 species so, accounts. And, yeah. and they've, all got, um, they've all got multiple pictures. How yeah. did you, the logistics of sourcing all those pictures and writing the species accounts, plus the ancillary stuff on, on the keeping and the associated pictures, uh, yeah. yeah. How did you get all that done in twelve months?
0: That's insane. Yeah, I was just thinking that your book is is almost the exact same size as Dick Visser's book, and he—I know it took him years to compile that book. And like some of the photos, you can clearly see it's from like the late seventies, early eighties, and obviously they used old photos. But some of like his hand-drawn sketches that are in the book of like airflow for vivariums, and you know how light bounces off of certain objects, and like year de- um, dare i say decades you guys killed it in a, in a year <laughs> you know what i mean
3: we are exceedingly lucky in the fact that we have a really good network of people which we rely on sometimes each publication right back from Spots first one
2: mm-hmm.
3: and they always pull, pull three for us always
2: so you know we're, we're both photographers as well right so you know I've got a library of twenty five thousand images, right? Tires pushing. I
3: don't know, I don't this. Like <laughs> <you. laughs>
2: yeah, again, my annual retentiveness is, is the same thing in my filing system for my images, so I can I can pull them back fairly quickly. I know exactly what I've got. I know what I want. Um it's and just then, family
3: photos that don't sort of get that categorizing to the
2: <laughs> And then uh I'll have a hit list of what we're chasing images of, whether it be localities or species or whatever. Generally speaking, I'll know who's got those images and then we'll talk to those people and say, hey, look, this is what we're chasing. Can we, can we work something out? And That's what happened. So, you know, people like Shane Black and Matt Somerville, uh, Brian Bush, Hal Cogger, um, Brian Francis, Sandra Zimney, um, Ross nice. McGibbon, Angus McNabb, those guys, Adam Elliott, those guys come through for us, you know, every time. Every time. If we, you know, happy to provide stuff to us, and then, you know, have you? Do you know about this? Have you seen this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, we can't think thank these guys enough. Um, and you know, you just got to look at the imagery that's in there to to see, you know, how incredible these. Some of the photos that these guys take, you know, it's it's art. It's it's it goes so much more than just a a photograph. Um, so what we sort of tried for, and this was a my own personal thing, is I wanted to try and minimise any images in any of our publications if we can. We try not to repeat them, because um, everyone likes seeing photos, yeah. Um, everyone likes to see new photos of things and different photos of things. So. Um, the plan was is that if we could not repeat images. Um, I did
3: want that red belly repeated because I like that image. And for me, it's that sort of link from the past to the present in, I guess, how far yeah. a publication has come for us sort of thing.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a few photos that were repeated in, in there, but for the most part, um, we we yeah. used new images. Um, and then even too, like we where we've got a headshot of something, we've tried to make sure that we... Used a different um, a different animal for the body shot. We tried to ensure that the uh, that the different localities were represented by by different taxa, uh, by different photos, to pr- provide the reader um, a bit of a visual feast, if you will, of the of the various sort of color phases of of lots and lots of different species. Um, some things that have been Described as synonyms and things like that Described as different species We wanted to, to show those different colour variations in there uh, and, and yeah, I suppose I The, the beauty true. of having, a, and having no limit when it came to the imagery uh, Pretty much, we were like, well, let's, let's knock off um, The book ended up with 1160 figures uh, Between the maps The line drawings that Ty has done, um, the photos, the graphs, and and all the rest of it. So there's there's a fair bit in there. If you don't want to read text, there's a lot of photos and stuff to look at.
0: Um, So do, do you guys? Obviously, you have your layout. You have what you want to write about. You start to write it now. Do you compile the images and the maps and the graphs at the same time that you're actually writing? Or do you write everything out for the, for the most part? You know, get the rough draft of the writing out, and then think, okay, I talk about X, Y, and Z in this paragraph. I should have this kind of photo to go with it. H- how do you guys choreograph that? Um,
3: we nailed out the species accounts first. We got down pat which species we wanted covered. Um, We came up with ideas that we wanted to write about and then we just sort of tasked ourselves with this sort of thing, really.
2: So so when I put together the the layout plan, it's basically all of the subheadings in the book, right? So if you look at foods and feeding, then we talk about how you introduce food, the frequency of the meals, size of meals, how to offer food, problem feeders, the different food types, um, and then strategies you can use to, to try and get animals to, to eat meals that don't want to eat, et cetera, et cetera. When it came to the housing, enclosure design, uh, lighting, heating, and then you can split each of these things down and by splitting them down to, to where you get to, so you, you know, you might end up be talking two or three paragraphs about a particular type of light, lighting system and then two or three paragraphs about another lighting or heating system, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, it's it's turned into, you know, um, you know 300,000 words and, uh, and a shitload of work. And then you're like, all right, well, we need photos of all this stuff. And so then it's a matter of systematically going through and going, what, do we have photos of this? If we don't have photos of it. Where can we get it? Where can we get the images from? And, you know, we... Uh, contacted, you know, we've got a, a long history, but, you know, Ty's been around the pet shop industry for for decades as well, so she had a lot of contacts there. So then they came to the party and, and gave us products that we could then take photos of or they gave us product photos that we could then use uh, in the uh, in the book to illustrate those points. Um, we still
3: had so many, so much stuff that we had bought for the original book Yeah, because we buy quality but it looked old (laughs) so we needed to buy a lot of new things as well to take photos of
0: yeah get all fresh fresh new look you know i saw you got that big midwest order and that like i can only imagine trying to source that stuff down by you guys and i imagine that what's that
3: Daniel was awesome. Sorry to cut you off.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And I just, I totally understand what you're saying, where you have your one set of, of tongs that are like your tongs and they're, they're, they've they're been with you through everything and they're scratched and they're dinged and they've got a little rust on the hinge and they're yours, but you'll never get oh. rid of those tongs ever again, but you can't put them in the book because they look dingy, yeah, exactly. you know?
3: <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. yeah, I mean, we've
2: got that for snake hooks. Um, we don't have that for tongs because our tongs sit on the shelf and never get used. Um, <laughs> you know, a- Australians don't use snake tongs uh, for the handling of snakes. They use snake tongs for, for feeding rats to rats to things or pulling a water bowl out. Um, it's a little bit of a different, different way of handling over here, I suppose. So, so that's always interesting. Um, we don't advocate the, the use of... Of snake tongs for the handling of snakes in the book um, basically because we've never done it we've never needed to use tongs to handle handle snakes now we're not saying that you can't do it but we've never done it and so that's the other thing that we wanted to make sure that you know this book is a is a collective of our experiences um, and so you know it'd be silly for us to turn around and say yeah use snake tongs to do this because We've never done that ourselves, so there's, there's not a lot of point to that. We That's can great. see a value for them, and we're not anti-them, I suppose, uh, in yeah. the right hands, but for us, it's just something that we don't need to use for, for the management of our species. Um, it seems to be similar in, in Europe as well from, you know, we just got back from Germany, and the way that people were, were dealing with the animals over there, it's it's, it's very largely hook-based, Um lot of non-contact you know shift boxes and things like that but it it's it's not a lot of tong use and it seems to it seems to be used a tongs seem to be used a lot in in south africa and they seem to be used a lot in um in america so um i suppose horses of courses is what you learn to use um
0: yeah yeah that's great
2: um, but yeah, look, I've also got I've got a snake hook that's absolutely stuffed. It's held together with zip ties and, and <laughs> silicon. It it looks absolutely shocking. But I love the weight of that snake hook. I love the use of that snake hook, and I've used that snake hook for, for decades. Um but it's not something that looks real nice in a in a photo, that's for sure. So yeah. And two, you know, we want to try out things like these these innovative products that are out there. Like we spoke about the, the Midwest stuff. You know, they've got this this dual hook set up where you've got those two things. And, and it's funny, you talk to a lot of uh, snake keepers about it and a lot of people don't like it. They don't like the use of it. Um, I think
3: too though, they, they've just got the standard size. Dana modified ours for us because I'm a short ass and we wanted to have it for the adders for the book so it's a lot shorter than what it comes standard and look, it's brilliant i can't praise it enough but this I is the one you
0: were telling me I, this is the one you were telling me has the the very very sensitive trigger no 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 no,
2: no, 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 no. this is
0: a hook oh it's a hook excuse me So and
3: i think i would struggle though if it was full length
0: yeah
3: it, it wouldn't be as easy to use
2: but so, yeah. so this has got a 26 inch uh, handle from the tip of the handle to the throat of the hook is 26 inches so it's quite short um it it works really really well but it's a completely different way that you've got to learn to use it so if you go to use it like you use a normal normal hook, you're going to struggle with it, right so basically what i set myself a task was basically to use and you know we've got a collection of around 100 plus snakes. I wanted to use this hook for everything that was larger than uh, larger than a juvenile. And so I wanted to use this one hook for everything and just get used to using it. So using our Taipans, pans, tiger snakes, brown snakes, black snakes. And it was very, very awkward and it was very difficult initially. But then you go around and you do a, a set of clean and then you do another set of clean and another set of clean. And by the third time I was going around the room, I was using it really, really uh, simply. And I was finding that animals that used to want to jump off the hook because they were not comfortable, these animals now felt supported and they weren't trying to flick off the hook and it was easier to use. Um, So it was a better management tool for the animals. so I, I suppose it's it's like everything—you've got to give these things a real go before you you say that you're not going to use them or you don't like it or whatever. So.
3: And we can't dispute the quality of Midwest. Hey, like you've got hooks that are yeah. over 20 years old easily,
2: yeah. and
3: they still function. Look, as good, not as good as new, but yeah, they're damn good. Damn good. Can, we put,
1: a, <laughs> can we put a link to that? different hook so people can have a look at it
3: oh definitely. yeah yeah definitely, sure. definitely. Sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that'll be great. yeah we'll put it in the show notes
2: yeah, yeah. cool it's, all, it's certainly a different thing and they've, they've got like a really wide version as well as a a two inch wide version and a four inch wide version i think they used the four inch wide version for using moving around gaboon vipers and and large other large bitters and you know, both rocks and shit like that uh lachesis uh, all those things, all those big-bodied things. Um, the 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 thing that is a little bit awkward with it is because you've got two set points, the animal can actually go through the center of the hook. Um, now, you, you know, it becomes a little bit problematic, but it's not something you can't not do.
0: Yes, it's not like you can't just let the snake go through and start over, you know? <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, I mean at the end of the day <laughs> your, your snake building itself should be something that you can put the the hook down and go and grab another hook if you need,
0: to. yeah, yeah, know? of course, of course, do you think with those um, uh, we're gonna do you think with those the having a longer foot to the actual hook would make it better or worse worse
3: worse
2: okay. the the difficulty with it is. Is actually sliding it under the ventrals um, in the first place. So you can, what most people do when they're using a hook, they tend to actually attack the uh, attach this go attack the snake or pick the snake up on the forty five, and it's a scooping motion right, that you're using to pick the snake up. With these things, you've got to come at it more like a ninety degree angle. So your your wrist placement and your shoulder placement is completely different, and it's a little and it bit. It does alien. feel
3: really awkward and, the
2: first few times. And so if you try and go to the side, you end up trying to hit the snake, it's almost like you're punching the side of it. And what happens is the snake body just shifts over. So you just get this pushing action as opposed yeah. to sliding underneath and going underneath the snake. Yeah, um, like so you board. change board. Yeah, it basically instead it, you're pushing it around with a stick as opposed to sliding and gliding underneath the, the, the ventral scales. Um, and then once you've got the, the hook up, then you've got to be a little bit more cautious about how you roll it in your hand to make sure that you're supporting the body the right way. Um, but once you figure those things out and you you start to get some muscle memory attached to it and all the rest of it, it works beautifully. Um, and you know, for people that like to double hook things, obviously you know you can use your your single hook as your lead-in hook and then bring this in as your secondary hook to support the body and you know, because the body's already up, it's nice and easy to slide in.
0: Yeah, you get so that good gap easy. there once you've started with the single.
2: Yeah, so you start with the single and then you've got that nice gap, bring the double back in underneath it. And then you've got an animal that's effectively almost sitting like on three hooks. So that snake is really well supported. And it's and it's it, then because it's well supported, it's not starting to wriggle, it's not starting to stress, it's not in pain and... You know, it, it means for a, a, calmer, a calmer handling sort of position, I suppose.
1: And, and you said uh, with the death adders, you're saying it's ideal for the small little heavy-bodied snakes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Works really well for death adders. That's cool. So, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. I should or, check.
0: or Vipera. It's exactly where I'm going with this, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah.
1: Maybe yeah. I should check check one out for my little um, rattlesnakes and the, the smaller... Vipera
2: We we saw a um, I think it's is a snake professional The the guys that have done Something similar to the the midwest Version that they've got They had some stuff at at the Ham show where they had a I think they call it a butterfly hook Which is like a a two foot Long version for, for baby snakes And that'd be perfect for things like Little Vipera and stuff like that
1: I'll check it out Nice Now just going back to photographs because, for me, being quite a simple creature, the, the thing okay. I love about the thing I love about uh, your book is the quality of the photographs. I mean, you know, it is genuinely outstanding, and you get so used to seeing the same <laughs> sort. Of, you, get, you get so used to seeing the same sort of photographs in various books, particularly with Australian stuff, because there isn't a great deal of publications on Australian stuff um, so you, you, you see the same style of image you see the same sort of image the images in your book were, were absolutely fabulous and some of the species haven't been photographed a great deal before um, yeah. how many I, I know you said you had a lot of help with that but how many of those photographs were actually your photographs and did you have to do any specific trips to go and get the photographs when you were writing the book or did take it, writing it in the book just take all your free time up
2: no, 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 we were doing little trips to, to go and get get, get we new photos, get redo in. redo things like rough scale snakes and redo things like, you know, stuff that we'd already seen and all the rest of it, but hey, let's get some new photos of these things. Um, so so yeah, so we did do some trips for that. Um I because we continue we seem to continually write and we, we're writing different books and all the rest of it. We're always photographing stuff. So whenever we go out to the scrub we're, we're taking photos of, of what this thing. Is. Um and anyway, yeah, it gets to show that variation too. Variation in there. Um, we wanted to make sure that there was a mixture of things like the the in habitat type type photos of things, as well as you Head know, shot. headshots as well as um, your typical field guide type shots as well. Um to really show that variation but then also too i mean it's a, it's a book a lot about captive husbandry so if we can put in things like you know something um hatching out of an egg or, or something like that as well uh in those species accounts at times and there we'd already had enough photos to illustrate that particular point in the front of the book for the mating section or the, the egg laying section or whatever then we might have snuck a few photos into the the species accounts of those sorts of things as well. Um, we, wherever we knew or wherever, wherever possible, we wanted to make sure that in the species accounts, we had lots of animals with locality data uh, to try and give people location information. Um, I suppose that the one, the one part of the book that, and it's, it's only on two pages, right? So it doesn't, it, it doesn't fairly represent the amount of effort that, Um, myself and and Yanni Tockela went to was the phylogenetic tree that we've got in there. So we ran a phylogeny. We basically took all of the records off off GenBank uh, and then ran a phylogeny for the book to really give people a better understanding of the the evolutionary relationships within the Australasian Olapidae radiation. Um, So a shitload of work went into that figure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to produce, uh, produce. Um, you know Yani's a, 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 a qualified geneticist um, he basically said you need to do this you silly monkey and, and that's basically what I did so I did a lot of grunt work and you know then he came along and, and basically put that grunt work into action which was great so. But then the um, answer to the photo
3: question not the junk question.
1: Oh, yeah, a so lot sorry.
3: of the I'd say a lot of the photos are also from the contributors. I mean, every single time, people like Sean Scott and Hal and Busho and Shane, Gus, yeah. go, what do you want? Ryan, what do you want? Just tell me what you want. Just tell me what you need. Yeah, I'll tell great. you where I'm going. If you, if you need spots of something. So, yeah, it's not many of mine were in there. say a decent amount of shots were in there.
2: Look, I think inside the book There's there's about 950 photos Of the 950 photos Well and truly Probably 650 plus uh, Either mine or Ty's photos
1: There's an awful oh, yeah. lot of pictures of you Scott in your vest Which I'm sure Is frustrating <laughs> That's the your special
2: time. <laughs> that's, that's good. Just that's, that's
1: just for you.
3: Looks like me and Alison are hitting the pub, and you two can have some alone time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I love the fact. I love the fact that you got a picture of your dog in there. What a lovely legacy. I oh, know. That is wicked. That really made me smile when I saw that. That was great.
3: She was cool. such a bitch. The camera goes up. She gets off the bed. The camera goes yeah. down she goes and sits on the bed and yeah. like poses oh, it took forever to not get a
1: photo <laughs> that, was, that was great that you got a picture in there um just a, a quick technical question just for me yeah with you i i find it very difficult how do you get on in situ not not in, not in your snake room but if you're out in the bush and you've got a really large snake to photograph say something like a taipan a decent yeah. length snake what what lenses are you using to photograph something to keep it reasonably all in focus? I use a hundred and five mil macro right. for a loss.
2: Um, and then I'm using a eighteen to fifty-five as well. So right. if I'm photographing a a, a six foot type or something like that, I'll be using a an eighteen to fifty-five. Now, my camera's got a crop factor of 1.6 on that, so it's effectively like an old-school 28 to 100 millimetre. And so I'm within 60 centimetres, I suppose, of that snake. I'm taking those images. So I'm pretty close. And then I'll use a series of... um, a series of either plant sources or bin lids or something like that to, to curl the animal up. So you put the pin, you put the, the bin lid on the ground and then the snake the goes underneath the bin lid, give it a little bit of time and then you, you lift the bin lid off and uh, have your photo, take your photo and then sometimes you need to go through it all again it makes it easier if you've got a second person there sometimes other times it's easy, <laughs> other times it's easier to do it by
1: yourself i hear what you're saying yeah um, then,
0: i only imagine that in your mind you're like oh i have a second person this is going to be great they can help me corral things when in actuality be,
3: oh fuck, it's time <laughs>
0: <laughs> well no i was going to say is in actuality the snakes now it's looking at two predators the- Thinking, oh man, now I got to watch out for two of them, and it's probably going to be more squirrely.
2: Yeah, it, it can be that way, and then invariably, you know, you're you're not quite in the right spot that you want to be when you want to take the photo, and then somebody else is there and they're taking photos as well, and it's like, oh shit. you know. And so, you'll do that, or then, you know, in some cases, a tie will be posing something up for me, or lifting the lifting the lid in a certain way, or I'll be lifting the lid in a certain way. And because you're looking through the viewfinder, you're not watching the behaviour of the snake as well as what you usually would be. And so you go to take the photo and next thing you know, there's a snake hawk that's in the way that you haven't put there because the other person is going, oh, well, I'm making sure that that snake's not hanging off your hand when you're taking that photo. So, um, so yeah, there's that. But then to do, to do some of the headshots in there as well, depending on the species, um, I've also got a tele macro, which is a 70 to 300. Um, so I can do a headshot on a, on a large squarely lapid um, that fills the frame with the head from three feet away. Um, oh, that's great. So that does make life a little bit safer when, when dealing with some of those things as well. So, was, there,
1: awesome. was there a species that you really wanted to get a photograph of the book but you didn't get, or did you manage to take every... Shot that you were like of maybe a locality or a particular color phase or something.
2: Um, well, I really would have liked to get a cl- a good clear usable photo of this undescribed, likely undescribed pygmy mulga snake from the Pilgrim mm-hmm. um, It's a uh, probably closely related to to the shadecus We've left it within Wiguli. Um It's known from one specimen that's not in a museum that was from, from photos that were sent to a number of us and it was quite clearly that it's a, it's a pygmy mulga uh, it's just from about a thousand kilometres away from every other pygmy mulga snake that's ever turned up in a completely different habitat um, with a whole heap of desert in between so it's it's almost certainly going to be something new um, so that would have been really nice to get photos of temporalis
3: um, we've got some crack cracking temporalis of other people but we were hoping to go and see them ourselves but the book just sort of came around yeah. and time ran out so so what's so the yeah uh,
0: what's the temporalis sighting like herper sighting i think it was up to like 12 now or is it more than nah, that more than that more than that
2: well, now, yeah um that looked at the life. Recent temporalis sighting that we're aware of, there was one that was seen about uh, six weeks ago um, that popped up on iNaturalist of all things. Um, really? So a, yeah, so there's a temporalis photo on iNaturalist now. Um, there's five or six sightings now have occurred in the Northern Territory. Um, oh, no. And there's, there's probably a good dozen or so that have turned up in wa so uh, that's awesome yeah so you know I, I think they're going to be they're going to be found over a much wider area than what people realize currently at the moment as well so, that's uh, awesome. so yeah so we've got we got lots of photos of those um, I'd love to get more photos of more of the New Guinea adders with proper location on them. Um, that would be nice to know. It'd be nice to know some of those some of those uh, true localities of some of those specimens. Um,
3: we also got slightly fucked with COVID, like yeah. Queensland, and she shut the borders. So we couldn't leave to take photos of anything that right. was outside our state. And yeah, so we did have to rely heavily on other people at, at some point for anything that wasn't in Queensland.
2: Yeah, so uh, And look, you know it, it was certainly an interesting experience um, You know, but we, we got Photos of a lot of things It would have been nice to get more photos Of some of the Papuan Papuan examples of things um, You know uh, uh, Glyphodon Tristus, we got some nice photos From Dave Williams uh, Wolfgang Worcester gave us some great photos From, from Papuan stuff as well Um Paul Hogger sent us some stuff. Paul Freed sent us some stuff. Um, you know, we, we got it. We were very lucky to get lots and lots of photos and lots of things. Um, the Papuan pygmy mulga snakes, it would have been nice to get some more images of those. And and Shadeka's Papuanus as well. It um, yeah. would have been nice to get some more photos of them. But, hey, we, we can always hope to get oh. more But, you know, at the yeah. same time.
3: Oh, well,
2: now we can just prove to the tax man that we need to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I suppose for me, it, it's really cemented that, that I'd love to get over to Papua um, and eastern Indonesia as well to go and look at some stuff. I'd love to go to, to Raja Empire and and go to Saram. Uh, everyone wants to go to Saram to, to head over to Halmahera to go and look at some scrub pythons and some blue tongues. Um I'd love to go see Micropekus and um, and Death Addis, so
1: uh, well that'd be pretty good.
3: <laughs> wow, so, the boys coming around
1: on that. Yeah. That sounds yeah it's great to have a trip list. You need to travel. Talking of travel, how was your experience traveling to Europe and attending the ham show? Because I've I just I come back love you. <laughs> Well, I've just come back from the Houghton Show in the Netherlands and literally as you walked in the door, all you could see was your book. It really made me laugh. (laughs) So the Houghton Show has got a big um, main reception area before you deviate off into the Venomous Room or the the various other rooms. So the main foyer had a big stand, big book stand from Chimera. And all you could see all over this stand was your book, um which really my day out it was lovely. Oh, that's good that's good. Yeah. um it was
3: did you go and tell your dungeon stories? <laughs> 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 did you go and tell the dungeon stories?
1: <laughs> no, no, no no i uh I can't go near the bookstore. I thought I'd already spent so much money. it's ridiculous, so uh it's a dangerous area to go and hang see that's where. In.
0: That's where you made a mistake. See, when I go to a big show like Daytona, I have my money for whatever I'm going to buy, animals, equipment, whatever. And then I have a separate pocket with separate funds specifically for literature. And that's <laughs> what you got to do.
1: Yeah, but I- I'm not on pop star wages like you, Phil. You know, nah. as as- <laughs> <laughs> Um.
2: Yeah, look, um, incredible. Uh, is, is In a, in a word, um, I suppose the thing that was that was really interesting for us was the the whole trip itself. Is you're getting excited over things that you never think you get excited over. You know, you go into a foreign country and you I know, no for, longer
3: use escalators.
2: For me, <laughs> yeah, for for me, the 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 one thing that really spun me out was watching a squirrel pop down the street. You know, and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Of all things, you know it. it, It's nothing. It's nothing for you guys because you guys are used to seeing squirrels, but there's no squirrels in Australia. So I was like, "There's a squirrel." (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) I just (laughs) just. Yeah, yeah. I've just been watching the squirrels jumping behind Phil. It's quite distracting. (laughs) You've (laughs) You've got squirrels running up the tree behind you, then jumping onto the roof, or vice versa.
0: Well, it's funny because I, I never record in daylight. You know, we, we do a night show, and so everything's asleep mammal-wise, but now I'm seeing out uh, of the corner of my eye, I'm like, what the hell's behind me?
1: <laughs> <laughs> squirrels are cool.
2: Yeah. Um, so... We- I, I, I suppose, sorry, getting back to you saying about the ham show. Um, look, the ham show was incredible. I, it was different. Um, we've seen reptile shows obviously here in Australia, but what we have as a reptile show is... You know, would fit in one room in, in Ham. Would have fitted, um, yeah, the,
3: you know, the
2: venomous room. The, so they don't have any venomous at, at our shows over here. You might have someone doing a venomous snake display or something like that, but there's no venomous snakes for sale. Um, so, yeah, walking into a venomous room uh, and and looking at these deli cups that have got, you know, snakes from all over the world, it's, it's a pretty incredible sight. Um, the first snake that I saw in the venomous room, though, common death adder. <laughs> yeah, I was just like... The
3: his facial expressions, And this poor guy was so excited to show him his death adder. And Scott's like, effect, it's a death adder.
0: It's a death adder. I'm not really excited <laughs> about it. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, a here, <laughs> it's a little different over here, guys. It's a little different. looking at the puff adders that
2: were sitting like, next to it. Like, he had some really nice... Um, uh, uh, Tanzanian uh, puffs sitting there, and they're bright yellow, and they were like, oh, yeah. oh, they're like, "How nice are these?" And yep. I was excited about that. Um, and then you know, you walk over, and I'm looking at twin-spotted rattlesnakes, and willard eye, and melosis, and um, all of these dwarf species of Bitus and some small viper, and all this stuff's there. And it's like, "Wow, this is good." Oh, here, but look at this stuff. I don't want to look at the Australian stuff. The Australians are boring. I want to look at all this stuff. So, (laughs) um,
3: I I want to say that I'm incredibly grateful for the experience. So here, it's nowhere near as big. It is tiny. It's minute compared to what Ham was. But there's a lot more variety, I guess, in the compact size. Whereas when we were walking around Ham, it just seemed to be the same thing over and over again, yeah. just with different price tags. And I guess
2: there was a, there was a I suppose your your classic stuff, and I suppose it's the same in all all reptile shows that that you have a, a myriad of things there where it's lots of carpet pythons, lots of royal pythons, lots of corn snakes, lots of chameleons, lots of dark frogs, lots of tarantulas, etc., etc., etc. There was a hell of a lot of variety there, but it was a lot of variety of the same same stuff.
3: And suppose. I think, too, I guess being Australian, I was sort of walking around going, I'll fucking take it home with me. That's pretty cool, <laughs> but I can't, I can't do anything. Like, it's yeah. it's... yeah. And I think it was... I we think, too, so.
2: like, the, 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 the one thing about the Ham Show is that, I'm not sure how much you guys are aware, but there's no social media at the Ham Show. There's no photography yeah. Um And, you know, I, I thought you'd see a lot of people running around taking photos on the sly and stuff like that. People, for the most part, aren't taking photos over there. They're not taking photos of the show or anything like that. So well, I think you know- the,
0: the real reason is because nobody wants their legs broken. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. I think, too, though, Ham is, like, old. So... I remember when we first got together, like, 20 years ago, sitting down on the couch going, fuck, yeah, we'll go to ham one day. And this was well before, you know, the internet with all the social media and all the rest, and you can see all this on social media. And so it sort of... Or dis- versions of it, yeah. yeah. and it sort of desensitises you to... It desensit... Oh, fuck. It's not even Desensi- early morning. It
2: desensitises oh. you to, to some of the some excitement, of the I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But- Oh, Look, I mean, it's an incredible experience um, But then also too Like we got to, to go and have a look At some absolutely amazing Venomous collections When we are over, over in Europe mm, um,
3: Met some lovely people
2: Met some great people Met some people that I'd only ever spoken to Online for, for decades And actually got to see them in person Meet them in person for the first time Yeah, it's a great um, feeling That's pretty cool Yeah um, we just, didn't just, get a lot of herping in, but we got a bit in here
1: and there. And, you know, a, I, I was couple, pretty excited about of my points. first bop. I'm going to come back to that, put a pin in that. Just talking about the shows quickly. You're yes. absolutely right, Ty. Tam, Ham is a very old show now. And it is kind of the most commercial show. in. It, it's, it's a show for volume rather than rarity. So... Yeah. It, but you've got Houghton, which is almost as big as ham and venomous wise is much, much, much bigger than um, or the snake day, Houghton snake day.
3: Well, 25. Much... <laughs>
1: yes, come over. Uh, but snake day particularly is more about the species rather than the commerciality of it. So it's great to experience ham. I don't really go to yeah. Ham anymore because a it's so far away compared to Houghton. You know, you're talking yeah. about an extra day's travel in real terms for me to, yeah. to go to to go to Ham. But um, if you want variety and to see rare species and not just tables and tables and tables of Royals and uh, and corns, I would say Houghton is is now by far the better show to go. Um, There's
3: obviously a market for it though, because so many people were there and obviously continue to go back. Um, yeah.
1: I would say ham is more a commercial in terms of people who do large trades. So people that are traders in animals, i.e., they run pet shops in their countries or whatever will tend to go to ham because they're going to buy 40 Royals or they're going to buy 200 corn snakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But people that are going for a particularly rare species would probably go, like myself, I would yeah. always rather go to um, and Snake Day because you're going to get species, and particularly venomous species, that you, you, you never get an option to see anywhere else. Um, I think the we- one
2: thing that was interesting about the ham show is that when I was talking to the, the, the main organiser of it, um, he was saying that they routinely have a consortium that comes over from Hong Kong, and Japan. Yeah. Uh you have people that come from India, you have people that come from Northern Africa, Southern Korea, Africa, Korea. Uh so basically all over the old world you've got people that come over. And then you also got people that come over from the US as well. Um yeah. and they they come over with, with bloody fat pockets uh to to pick up these different <laughs> morphs and different things that are out there. And and look, the reality of it is is that they're coming over for not really so much venomous. They're they're coming over for the other other side of the hobby, which is probably a little bit you know, we call it a side, but realistically it's it's the majority of the hobby that's outside. Oh, of, of yeah. us. Um
3: but it was cool. I just want to say because I realize I sort of not dished it, but it was really cool to be able to get the experience, to be able to go to something that is basically a historical event in herpetology. Really, it's been around for so long, and I was re- I'm really grateful for the experience. I just yeah. think I probably built it up more in my head.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, so
3: cool. It's huge, and I think. None. I was disappointed. I was just sort of, wow, it's all pythons again. Wow, it's the same wall. It's it's, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. How did it? How did it feel to see uh, when you walked in to see your book all over the stall? <laughs>
2: well,
3: after getting over the shock of Scott driving in the wrong side of the road and almost killing us on the way there. <laughs>
2: <Nah. laughs> <laughs> oh, no? Hang on. Let's let's make <laughs> like that quite clear. That's Everywhere, no,
3: drove into a bus. How much more clearer could it have been? No,
2: they're on the wrong side of the road. No, it
0: it's the, the right side, off. it's the right side. The right side <laughs> is on the right.
2: No. So, the legislation over there oh is God. backwards, right? Nipper, I believe that we drive on the correct side of the road. 100%. Right.
0: Yeah, no, now he says correct,
2: the- not right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit more <laughs> eloquent than you, Philip. Well, thank you, thank Ooh. you. <laughs> um, so I would, I would ascertain that, you know, we drive on the correct side of the road. They've got it ass backwards.
1: 100%. Okay? 100%.
2: So, you know, at the end of the day, if they were intelligent about it and they, they drove on the correct side of the road, then we wouldn't have had these issues. You want to I'm
3: wake up I'm out. Sleep teenagers in a hurry? I'm
0: outnumbered. <laughs> I don't have a horse in this race. <laughs> no you really don't but that's all right it's it's, okay. it's fine
3: um <laughs> i shouldn't really bag him i'm like i'm not fucking driving no way <laughs> <laughs> narrow roads no way <laughs>
0: well it's funny is when when my uncle who lives in sydney when he used to come you know for the summers just for a month or two just to hang out with family it would take him a solid three weeks to not almost hit someone driving on our side so <laughs> i can only imagine it was the crossing, second Crossing week. the street too. Yeah. Right? Like, like crossing the street's a
2: pain in the ass as well, right? Because we look to the left, then we look to the right, then we look to the left again before you walk across the street. And you do that subconsciously. You don't even think about
0: it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you guys
2: do it the opposite way, um, you know, you're looking to the right, to the left, and then to the right again. Yeah. So Yeah. Um, so that's different. Uh, it
3: was the second week when I finally stopped thinking, oh, how romantic He's opening the door for me. I'm like, that's I'm like, <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> good. I didn't even think of that. So, um,
1: you, you said you visited some uh, European collections, people's private collections. Yeah. Did you, what did you think of how Europeans keep stuff? Did you think it was different to how you would keep in Australia or was it basically the same? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, it's, there is a, a larger push, and I think it's a, a push that we're seeing across, across the hobby in general, I suppose, that there is a, there's a genuine push for less numbers, larger enclosures, better enclosures across the board. Um, you, you still have a, a place for, for plastic tub style, style keeping. You still have a, plas, a, a place for, uh, for rack systems and things like that. But having animals in, in planted vivariums with good quality lighting, with good quality heat sources, natural uh, enrichment, natural enrichment, uh, it, it seems to be that to be more common and more prevalent. Um, and, and frankly, that the systems that they're using in Europe are considerably further advanced due to the size of the. Uh, the industry over there compared to what we're seeing in Australia. I mean, Australia is difficult in the sense that it's really hard to get some of these pieces of equipment that you guys are easily able to obtain. Um, You know, quite an example of that is, say, a PVC enclosure. PVC enclosures over here are ridiculously expensive um, compared to the prices that you can get them overseas. Um,
3: And I've got to say, we were welcomed into at some time, yeah. complete and utter strangers houses. We were welcomed in with open arms. Hospitality was sensational. Yeah. It was just all round awesome. We were so lucky. I, I suppose, you
2: know, and I, I suppose if I can if I could summarise it simply was, we went round to a, a person's house and he was, uh, he invited us, invited us in and um, and showed us some of his collections and and some of his enclosures, and he was telling us about the the leaf litter that he has got a friend who works at the the tropical botanical gardens, and he goes to the tropical botanical gardens to collect leaf litter from the tropical plants so that the leaf litter that he's putting into his bioactive enclosures matches the the species that he's keeping inside those enclosures. Um,
3: And he would be the best private keeper I have seen by far. Like
2: yeah. what? Uh, like. You know, the, this guy's enclosures. He he has rocks from the locations where possible of where these animals are from. He uses soil structures from where these these animals are from. And so you you literally look inside an enclosure and you're looking at a piece of Suriname, and then you're looking at a piece of Iran, and then you're looking at a piece of of the Pilbara, and then you're looking at a bit of this and a bit of that. And you literally can sort of look around the room in his snake building and literally it takes you around the globe looking at, you know, Shida or Irochanoides, the uh, uh, Iranian Spital Tail Viper. And then you're looking at a black-headed bushmaster master from, uh, from Costa Rica. You might be looking at a Gaboon Viper from, from, you know, Tanzania. And then you might be looking at uh, an Aatrox and, and some Pilbred death adders or something like that. So to to see collections like that, um, incredible. Incredibly large enclosures with integrated trap box systems. Um, well-thought-out room. Really well-thought-out room, well-thought-out ventilation systems, lighting systems. You know, it's it was an incredible setup. And he and, did
3: everything himself, the rock work and everything. Yeah,
2: and then... You know, he, he was doing some further work and he goes, oh, we'll come down and have a look at this stuff if you're interested. And there was a, a room that he's building currently at the moment. It's got nothing in it. So you got to see these enclosures half done. Um, and so how he's setting those up and using things like pond liners to, uh, to provide a, basically like a, a really big area for this, this substrate to go into while it doesn't damage the timber work and, and things like that as well from this excessive humidity. Um, so that was that was really interesting to see. Um, so that was great. Um, and then, yeah, to, to get out and look at other systems, how people keep these animals that I've always looked at, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see, see all those sorts of critters, that's for sure
1: and uh you managed to get in a little bit of euro herpin while you he was out there. Yes. How
3: did that go? Photos.
1: You did send me some pictures. It was nice to get yeah, every day. I, I was looking at little uh little pictures that you sent.
2: Yeah, so we we went over to uh we were obviously in Germany but then we went over to uh, to Holland as well. Um and you know when we were in holland we were lucky enough to come across a uh uh viper uh so that was pretty exciting to come across my first viper in the wild um, that, that, that's and, mad
1: that's the most iconic european snake i'm so pleased you found it that's wicked
0: well like, you know can I only mean, imagine what the look on your guys faces and like having been able to be with nipper <laughs> seeing <laughs> the rattlesnakes know. like it's epic. <laughs>
2: yeah. But, well, I, I was pretty excited. Um, you know, and I, I didn't have my best foot forward in regards to my appearance when I was pretty excited. I was.
3: In my defense, he <laughs> said, take a photo. And I said, don't pull that stupid, shitty expression. And he goes, take a photo. So I took a photo, and it's a cracker of a photo. <laughs> nice.
0: Nice. Right. One
2: of those ones that'll come out every now and then, I'm sure. Um, but. But, yeah, very, very excited to see that. That was a – we were put onto a location. Um, you know, we we had some great help from, from people like yourself, Nipper, that sort of said, hey, this is where these things are sitting. So when you go into that habitat type, this is where you should be looking. Um,
3: Eric was lovely
2: too. Yeah, Eric was very helpful as well. And so we spent – we went to this location that was meant to be a very good – uh, spot for adders and it
3: was, never- it was
2: it was awesome it was a beautiful sunny day and we were like right okay this is going to be great temperatures a little bit on the cool side but it shouldn't be too bad it was it was high teens i'm like well as a european viper it surely can deal with deal with, deal with cold temperatures
3: there were people um, walking their dogs and we were just walking backwards and forwards around the area looking and they just kept staring. I think they thought we'd lost our keys. <laughs>
2: so, so I'm sort of zigzagging through this, this uh, these fens and thorny scrub things. And basically the, the the grass was about, you know, thigh high, I suppose. And in between that you had thistles and little spiky plants and, and flowers and stuff like that. So it was very, very thick. Um And you have these little patches of of bare ground in in places there that were sheltered from the wind that were getting sun. And so, you know, that's where we're concentrating a lot of our effort to to try and see these things. And I'd spent probably two and a half hours, and Ty had spent two and a half hours basically zigzagging through this stuff. And I was getting a little bit disheartened, thinking to myself, well, you know, what's... Not quite sure what's going on here. Anyway, so I I ring the guy that put us onto the spot and said, What's the what's the going? He goes, Oh, yeah, if it's not 20 degrees, don't bother. And this is like 16 degrees. I'm like, oh shh. It was 30. Oh, 13 degrees, sorry. 13 degrees felt like 16. (laughs) And I looked at it and I was like, right, this is it. Well, all right, I'm gonna do one last pass and literally. Ty had already started walking back towards the vehicle, and I yelled out, "Yes!" <laughs> oh, and that's my mind is going to Amsterdam
3: if you get my drift. <laughs> Ty, Ty turned
2: around and told me to, to go go get sorted, uh, and, what? and and and, oh, and, oh, and so right. <laughs> you didn't, uh, and then a whole heap of other expletives and and. Uh, and then yeah, I was I was giggling like a school girl making faces. That's um, great. That's so, so that good. was really cool. um, so we, we set about getting some photos of this this beautiful little uh, likely a female Anna as I understand there's sexual dimorphism in these things. Sorry, little thing, that's good. Um, so got photos of this little snake and uh, you know if it was off it was off on a merry way and uh, yeah that was that and then the the other big ticket item for me that I really wanted to see over there was a cordate. We don't have any cordata here in Australia, so there's no no salamanders, there's no native newts, so we don't have any of that stuff over here. Um, so I really wanted to see newts in the wild. So we went to a, a location that's pretty good for fire salamanders and, and also a few species of newt. Um, I literally spent, we'd, we'd gone out for dinner, and then straight after dinner, I spent six hours uh, flipping logs during the day, basically looking for these things. And I, anyway, I, I found a newt that was about 30 millimeters long, total length. And I was very excited about this newt. And they weren't that excited about it. They were like, oh, yeah, that's just Alpestris, sort of. Sort of i like, oh, yeah, okay, no worries. And I didn't bring the camera with me on this because we were going out for dinner sort of thing. So we, I didn't bring the camera. So I like taking a few phone photos and they're like, oh, yeah, we've got these in the garden. So swing past in the morning and we'll, we'll go and have a look. So anyway, so the next day we, we're, we're there and we're looking at the, what was that afternoon? We went back there that afternoon, sorry. And we went back there that afternoon and uh, Natasha literally rolled one rock and got six newts in the time that it took me to find all these others. Ty's like, oh. well, she's obviously a better herper than you are. Like, oh, <laughs> That's I've, I've got nothing there. I've got nothing to say to that. So, um, so yeah, did have the camera for that and was obviously able to get some photos. So, you know, between those two things, that was great. Um, and, yeah, I suppose we're, we're, we're keen to get back and see mm-hmm. see different things again and 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 see the way different people do things and it's already got given us some ideas um the one thing that we did see and I, i've never seen it here in australia we've used uh a moist hide right so it's a basically a, a a plastic tub that sits within the enclosure a bit like a nest box that you put together and fill it up with sphagnum moss um the one thing that we know that with some of the Some of the people over there, is they... (laughs)
3: Sorry, I have a dog (laughs) spot.
2: (laughs) Um, One thing we noticed over there is people had kitty litter trays inside their enclosures that have dry substrate. And it's a kitty litter tray that they pour water into so they've got a little moist section of soil. And the whole idea of that is so that the soil doesn't get rotted. You don't ruin your bioactivity in your substrate by having a really wet bioactive mix. You can have a really quite a dry mix, but you can have a wet section that the snakes can then go down and they'll either lay their eggs in there if they're a, an egg-laying species or if they need that excessive humidity, a little bit more humidity because they're coming up into a, uh, a shed cycle or something like that, they can use that. So that was yeah. something that they had that in a lot of enclosures. Lots and lots of enclosures had these moist Moist setups, whereas over here we tend to mainly use that for the species that require more humidity. Um, so we have really large enclosures ourselves, and so we're going to start incorporating these these humid humid sections, I suppose, human substrate sections in our enclosures to give those give the snakes a choice. Um, they'll probably just make a big mess, and there will be more
1: shit for me to clean up.
0: Yeah, I mean you'll, you'll you'll work the bugs out, and yeah. it's easy because you could take the whole pan out, you know. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: it's yeah. something. I, it's something I do, um, particularly for my milk snakes and for the pine snakes. Certainly for the boyger and stuff like that. I do have these. Not sure what they are. I think they're school dinner tray or something like that. That they that you did the school washing up in when you was young. Um, so yeah, they just like big plastic troughs. And I normally have either really sodden, large-scale orchid bark in there, or I'll just have neat sphagnum moss, but really, really saturated. um, Just with a cover over it. uh, Just with a cover over it. It's just as you say. It's just an option um, for something for 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 species that might, in their natural habitat, be seeking out slightly damper areas.
2: Yeah, I I, I suppose so. I mean, we've always provided ample humidity to, to our animals, but, you know, to, to have that in there constantly in the enclosures yeah. as a standard, um, yeah. we thought we saw something a little bit different. We hadn't seen that here in collections over here. Uh, so that was something a little bit different. What else did we see? Um, I suppose the other thing that we noticed was the, the different mentality when it comes to manipulation of, of specimens. Uh, so we're, we're not hands-off keepers here. So we'll put our hands on animals. We'll use you know, hook-and-tail methods and tailing methods and things like that. know, historically in the past, I've free-handled, free-handled venomous snakes as well. I've, I've changed my tune on that um, after going into anaphylaxis uh, in, back in 2005. Uh, so you know, I I have historically free handled venomous snakes. So I I I You're like
3: a reformed smoker now, are not you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um. So you know, I'm I'm not anti free handling or anything like that, but we we don't free handle. Um. But we don't. We still engage with our animals fairly regularly. Um, you know, we'll hook and tail things out, and that's what we'll do for the most part. We don't tend to use trap boxes or complete non-contact methods for the manipulation and the cleaning of the animals whereas we saw a lot more of those sorts of style setups over there where people were having the animals go into a trap box and then once the animal was secured in the trap box then they would look to open the enclosure to, to, make, to, to conduct their maintenance um, let,
0: me, let me ask you this, do you think that that is a and there's really no way to answer this. But in your personal opinion, having just seen these collections, do you feel that it's not so much that the keeper is weary of removing the animal themselves, but it's more so because it's so naturalistic or it's a bigger vivarium and there's more there's more natural decor and things. It's almost easier for the for the vivarium to use a shift box or a trap box opposed to trying to manually remove said animal. that's going to knock stuff over and uproot things and whatever else.
3: I, I don't think it had. Yeah, I don't. I honestly think it was for the enclosure and probably a little less stress on the snake because yeah, yeah. all of the people that we are talking about are extremely competent.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think they're sort of a little from column A, a little from column B. You know, I mean, it, it's it's more that it would be very difficult to remove an animal out of some of those enclosures without destroying that enclosure.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost a problem. repetition training thing too.
2: Yeah so, that, so so that was that was one thing and I, I did ask the question I said, you know what well, if you want to get the snake to go into the hide box or how do you how do you deal with that And he goes I pull the hide I pulled the hide out right open that up and then you can put a mouse put some mouse scent or something like that as soon as you put that hide back, those are lapids and, and a lot of those large vipers, will go into those hide boxes to see what the hell you've just put in there, right? And so yeah, they'll go, they'll go on their own accord pretty quickly, and then you can go in and you can maintain maintain the enclosure. Um, so, so that was different, but I suppose at the same time too, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, hooking and tailing things and stuff like that, whereas there was uh, more resistance, I suppose, to to opening an enclosure with a and Unrestrained lapid uh, sitting within it, or an unrestrained fiber within it, than than what I suppose what we're used to. So, uh, not to say that it's any better or any worse. It's just a, it's just a different setup a different way of thinking. I suppose. Um, I suppose too, the other side of it is over here. We're used to having very good access to things like antivenoms and things like that, whereas over there it's a little I bit more hit time. and miss. So, uh, I think too, you just
3: get used to what you know, like we don't yeah. know any different. So we do how we do, just as you guys would if you hadn't seen other countries or people from other countries who do things differently. So you just get used to it yeah. and you do it a certain way without, I guess, thinking about it too much because it's what you're used to. And then it's different when you travel. You just, I don't know, I just assumed it was going to be the same, I guess. I also- I, I
2: I suppose the one thing that was interesting, and it was a, we were looking at a, at a, a collection and looking at some animals, and then, you know, they they produced some Australian red bellied black snakes that were, were juveniles. And he sort of said, "Oh, you, you, know, what do you think of these?" And I, I just opened the enclosure without thinking, and I pulled the snake, and I'm looking at the snake, and I'm looking at the tail on it, because he was asking me some questions about what I thought with regards to sexing of it. And so, without even thinking, I'm, I'm tailing this snake, and and then I realised, hang on a second, I'm not in Australia anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I, I sort of looked across, and the person was like, "Oh, uh, uh, we don't usually handle like that." And you know, here's a this is a black snake. This is an animal that I've been handling for for thirty plus years. Um, it was a juvenile red belly. It wasn't something that that really presented any serious threat. Um, so it's not something that, you know, and I, I wasn't being um, rough with the animal, I certainly wasn't free handling it or anything like that. I wasn't putting myself at undue risk. But it was just different mentality, I suppose, to what the the Europeans were used to to looking at. I, I,
1: I think I think you're exactly right in terms of your whole venomous experience as is, is around dilapids, really, isn't it? Yeah. in Australia whereas for Europeans we lapids are a very very small part of the hobby because we can't physically get many of them um yeah yeah so most of our venomous keepers will have come up with vipera first of all or maybe some crotillus or stuff like that so their techniques are probably based around that sort of species and when when for, for us the top of the pyramid for want of a better word will be the bigger elapids. Um, yeah. whereas for you, elapids, as you say, is your bread and butter. You're quite happy to stick your hand in there. Um it you know risk adversely and it's just normal for you. But but for most European keepers, an elapid it is the top of the is the top of the tree and will be the risk assessments for that will be apex risk assessments.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, and look, it was great. to it was great to sort of see those differences. Um, but it was also interesting to to play with rattlesnakes and and bitters. And uh, I, I suppose the one the one animal that really spun me out was a an so ic- so. an icus that was literally eighty millimeters long from the tip of his nose to the tip of its tail. It was yeah, this little, little cocktail one. straw. Yeah, yeah, these were these were uh, hatchling. Tra- was it trooper? or was it. Uh, it might have been oscillatus. I think. Um, I think it was oscillatus. Nice. Uh, and so, so these things are tiny, right? And we're uh, taking some photos of them, and, and I loved. They're the best snakes to take photos of because you literally put them down and they curl up for you. Like this is free. Yeah. Um, their hands.
3: How much we miss.
2: And so, so I've got this little source scale viper in front of me, and I'm, I'm taking photos of it. And I'm hearing this like little buzzing noise. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Damn, <what laughs> snake is soaring. And so, I'd never heard a source scale viper actually soar. And I was in. It was incredibly amount of noise this that was was making. The volume it was
3: producing. The for volume the size, it was producing yeah. for the yeah. for the
2: size was incredible. But you couldn't hear it. So Ty was standing three feet above this thing. I'm on my knees photographing this thing on the on the floor. And you know, Ty couldn't hear it from where she was. But when you got your head down and you're you, you're taking the photos and all the rest of it, here you can hear this thing buzzing away. It was it was really, really quite incredible. And then you hear the adults going off their head uh, when they were taking photo when we were taking photos of those. So, you know, the the noise on the adults was considerably louder, but to have these little baby saw-scale bikers, the amount of noise that I was making, that was a very interesting sort of... It's so sad.
3: Of like, there's so much we're not
2: saying well. yeah, if,
3: if you don't know people in the zoo system that have the animals to begin with, yeah, there's so much that keepers here miss out on.
2: Yeah. And, and, oh, and okay. too, like, the, the, yeah. the keepers in Australia aren't working with things like Icas. They're They're working with... Large, you know, it's it's large cobras and, you know, a couple of African species, a couple of Asian species. Um, we've got very few varieties in, in the bikers and the rattlestones, You know, it's Aatrox, Adamensius, Lepidus, um, some sister species being kept in Australia in the zoo systems. Um, you know, Botharicus, uh, Shregolo, uh what else? Is, uh, you know, Gila monsters. Uh, which i think
0: is it's great that there is those there but i almost feel like because the private sector doesn't have as wide assortment to choose from those animals are almost going to not be good training animals or i mean you can use it for education but an adamantius at a zoo that's been coddled and babied for its entire life in the zoo is not going to react like one that's in a private collection or even in the wild so yeah, it's, well, it's we, don't
2: have private, we don't have private collections of things like Adamantium. Yeah, here.
0: yeah. There's
2: no, there's no private exotic venomous keeping in the country. Well, no legal.
0: Right. So, <laughs> no, no legal. You know,
2: there's there's people that are always doing things the wrong way, I suppose. But there's, there's certainly no no legal private exotic venomous keeping over here. Um, and so that that was something a little bit different to go and, and look at that stuff. And then to walk into a pet shop and, and see chameleons in a pet shop and firetail tail yeah. We walked into one pet shop and there's lathanotis in there for fuck's sake. In a fucking
3: sloth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> just to clear a no- Yeah, that, that was like a bit of a disappointment. My first lathanotis was in a
1: pet shop. Oh, yeah. Shit. Welcome to Europe. You can get anything for the right dollars. <laughs>
3: It was admittedly apparently a pet shop. Yeah. Everyone was like, "Oh my god, you went there? Did you wash?"
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know, you've got pet shops like that everywhere around the world as well. So
3: not quite as yeah. big, I don't think.
2: Yeah, that was that was that was a very large nice
3: pet shop. And I want to give a shout out. My German is absolutely embarrassingly, disgustingly horrible. You're going to need to pronounce.
2: Eater. Oh, yeah, so we went, down, we went down and saw um, Reptilian Shindig, I'm going to say, which is down on the, the, the southern Germany-Austrian border. Um, beautiful little reptile zoo. If you're ever Highly in Germany, go over and have a yes, look. They've it got, is
3: sensational.
2: They've got a really nice internal collection, but then they've got this collection of, of uh, outside pits that have got a whole heap of different uh, vipers and stuff like that. And like Run, we were like the
3: loveliest people too.
2: Yeah, and so we, they they breed a lot of opira in those pits.
1: Uh, okay. Really cool. Um, Phil so can go out there cool. and uh, tick them off on his Euro list, surely. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah,
2: for sure. Um, so that was cool. Um, yeah, so Rebecca and Anudo over there were great. Um, you know, Klaus, Frank, uh, and then Felix at the Frankfurt Zoo as well was, was really cool. Yeah, done to feed well.
3: giraffes. That was so,
2: awesome. Yeah. So we, we got to do some really cool things. And then, you know, I, I suppose the other side of it, and, and, you know, we started off talking about books and, you know, in some ways for me, it's I've always had an affinity for her books. Um, and I think in some ways it's that affinity there because we can't keep exotic reptiles. I can have exotic reptile books, you know, and, uh, and so to, to walk into the, the Chimera shop and see all of these titles from across the globe, Jesus, it was it was pretty bloody impressive. Um, I will.
3: Buy the <laughs> <laughs> I
2: will. I will say though that it was good that we had weight limits on our luggage. So, uh, yeah. So and we exhausted that that weight limit to the kilo as well, mind you. Yeah,
0: you guys came home with a, a hell of a stack.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh so that was good. That was really good. Um and so I, I suppose with that is that we've we've taken on a a a new venture that's that's gonna be coming coming around full circle. Uh that will hopefully allow us to expand more on our book collection at some point in time. So <laughs> we'll just leave it at that for now. Uh, nice. But yeah, nice. Um, what else have we got going? Uh, we've got
3: another
2: book. Yeah, so we're we're working working on another book at the moment, and uh, really, yeah, yeah, stupidity is is exceedingly. Exceedingly common in these parts, so we've already started working on that. Um, and I've got the revised edition of the Snakes, of the Frogs of Australia uh, that should be out early in the new year as well. So we've started seeing layouts come back for that now. So that's, that's all fun and games. So, yes, no rest for the wicked. That's all right.
0: Keeps you youthful, brother. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, we'll
1: go with that. Why not? Yes, so. Well, we best let you get to bed. What time? It's got to be quite late over there now. Yeah, it's 11 o'clock. Yeah, we best let you go to bed. Scott definitely needs his beauty sleep. Um, <laughs> I've got a head for radio, never. <laughs> right. Just a quick, couple of quick points um, just to go back. Should when you come herping with me in the UK, 20 degrees is quite hot for Berus. My rule of thumb, if there's bees flying, the snakes will be out basking because the bees need a certain temperature. So that's a good little good little tip. If there's if there's bigger bodied insects flying. so large bumblebees. large bumblebees and stuff like that. Yeah, they were, they were flying. So yeah, that, that's yeah, good. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so they'll be out. um and I was lucky enough, just going back to you talking about echis, I was lucky enough to hear adults in the desert and it re- the sound really, really carries. It's you think, you know, wow. you think you're looking for an enormous snake <laughs> uh, and as you say, and then you come across this thing that's just like, you know, 12 inches long or something like that. And <laughs> it sounds huge. They're a fabulous little species, much like hearing rattlesnakes. I, was- I did find it was quite directional.
2: Um yeah. depending on sort of where you were, where you were placed. If you were sort of directly over the top, it was really quite loud. But if you were to the side, either laterally in front of it or or, or behind, it wasn't anywhere near as prominent. Um, I suppose it's probably not a bad adaptation for a, a large, heavy, heavy hoofed predator that was going across the top to, to try and get these things to stop. I suppose to uh, to stop from crushing them. I suppose.
1: Oh, yeah. Ideal. Right. Is there anything you'd like to put out before we leave? Any, Michelle? Um, Yeah. Look, I I suppose, you know, we've, we've got a bit
2: of a, a list here of a lot of the people that sort of helped us with the book. Um, Oh, that's all right. I'll butcher it anyway, just out of, out of hell. Um, but, look, we, we'd like to just sort of shake, sort of thank, you know, people like Shane Black, Busho, um, Helen Heather Cogger, uh, Nathan Clout, Adam Elliott, Ryan Francis, Ash Corn, Christy Jensen and Matt Somerville, Corey Kawaro uh, from Sydney Reptile Relocation, Scott Kickham, Ross McGiven, Angus McNabb, Sean Scott, Yanni Torkeler, Rob Belenic, Steve Wilson, Wolfgang Wooster, Anders Zimney, uh, and then to Josh Linus, Adeline Robertson, Dana Sabarelli, Dave Williams. You know, these people were instrumental in, in putting this book together. Um, you know, they've all all provided some some really important uh, either images or discussion or anything like that and and frankly the book's better for it for for the the help of these people and you know a book like this is is something that a lot of people put together as opposed to just two people that are writing it so you know you know we we really appreciate the help that that those people have extended to us and you know we hope that, that the book that's come out has has uh has done their assistance justice i suppose
3: um, and I'd like to say thank you too to Andreas, Natasha,
2: and Collard. Like, yeah, they're amazing. The yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, and, and I suppose the other thing is too, right? Um, you know, I I didn't finish high school, right? I haven't got a university degree. Um uh, Ty has ADHD. Uh, so just label
3: me, sunshine. <laughs> yeah. <just label laughs> it, right.
0: Um, right in front of the bus
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, 100%, right? But I suppose the point that I I want to reiterate is that things can be difficult, things can be tough, but that doesn't mean to say that they're not worthwhile doing right? Um,
3: All my high school and primary school reports say she won't amount to anything, she can't focus, she talks too much, she doesn't pay attention. Just,
2: you know, to the people out there that that if they're looking to, to, to maybe do this or maybe write a paper or maybe put together a booklet or whatever
3: don't, don't like, listen
2: to the people that yeah. say that you can't do it put it together and, and have a crack Have a, have a go at it and oh yeah you know it's every keeper that, that is keeping and working with animals can actually go to the wars the collective knowledge of of the herb community on how to to work, how to better keep these things right um
3: well, look at Nikki with the yeah. crocodile skinks. That's yeah. amazing what she's recorded. You know
2: the stuff that I don't know if you guys follow the stuff from from Nikki and, and Alexander Eagle, but you know she's shown that she posted videos on social media the other week of, of crocodile skinks literally burying and reburying their eggs and rotating their their eggs and things like that. Yeah, so triple notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. notice. Yeah, yeah, triple notice. Yeah. Um, you know, so digging an egg up rotating the egg and then reburying it again you know these things are apparently you can't rotate reptile eggs well we know you fucking can because i literally grabbed a type N egg and all the way through the incubation i turned it a quarter of a turn every couple of days to see what would happen because we all get told that if we drop a reptile egg they they drown yeah
3: you can't roll them they
2: can't roll be, them. you can't do this you can't do that well yeah it's probably not a great idea but it you can certainly do that. I think
3: they're a lot more durable than we give them credit for.
2: Yeah. Um, to quote Brian Barnett, reptile eggs are designed to hatch. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're not so precious. But um, in a roundabout way, getting back to that, uh, you know, if people wrote down more and recorded more about what they what they saw in captivity and published it, whether it be in herp journals or, or whatever... Um it would be good i mean there's there's some online journals out there that are great uh submit the data, submit the information across to people so people can access it they can learn um, and Phil, I hope you're taking notes about these these stiletto snakes that you're working
0: with hundred you know? percent man hundred percent so, you guys are inspirational it's amazing
1: so um, yeah. Well, a huge, huge thanks for staying up and coming on to speak to us. I know that shed ton of people want to talk to you about your book, and I really appreciate and Phil really appreciates you coming on and talking to us. Um, we love you, guys. I know. Um, you know, you're lucky that you've won the life lottery because you've got Scott. So, you know, we're <laughs> good. did
3: he but, tell you to
1: say that beforehand? Or? <laughs> no. <unfortunately>, <laughs> <wonderful>. <laughs> See,
0: I was going to say the same thing to him because he has her. <laughs> it's it's a a
1: win-win for anybody that is living under a rock and hasn't seen a copy of the book we will put a link in the bio but you know if you are into venomous snakes in general or if you're specific into lapids do go and get a copy of this book it is 100% the the benchmark work and um, it might have imitators going forward but I I don't think anyone's going to do a better publication on a lapids
0: certainly in my lifetime and so, to, to, to quote to quote the podfather mr eric burke he doesn't keep venomous but the amount of husbandry knowledge and thinking outside the box that this book has to offer to just our community as a whole regardless of what kind of animals being kept you know it, it's worth getting the book just for that
3: oh wow oh thank you guys happy days. well
2: you know I'll, uh, I'll have to tell Eric that he's in the mail as well what a divorce worth it <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, look, and, and, and you know I suppose this is the this is the good side of social media in, in a lot of ways right so you know we're literally across the globe talking to each other um you know we've, we've become friends from from people that are literally on the other side of the planet uh and, you know, we often see social media as being something that is effective for, for free handling videos and, and, and bitching and moaning about the reptile community and the, and the paucity that social media does have. But then you've got things like this where you've got social media that has, has brought people across the globe together to talk about the collective love of, of these incredible animals that, that we work with. So,
0: you know. We, can, we can use
2: our powers for good,
0: you know. 100%. 100%. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I'd cool. just like, be- before we before we jump off, I'd just like to say a little shout-out to Eric. I'm going to crucify his surname now. Eric Watchell, which I know... <laughs> uh, we totally I don't, don't get, have a dungeon, Eric. Don't listen to Nipper. <laughs> so they do have a dungeon, Eric. Be very afraid. Um, no, it was, it was it was cracking to meet you at the the Houghton show. It was it was really cool to talk and uh, keep up the good work. Um, I've had a lot of people, a um, friend requested me on Facebook. Um, I don't really use Facebook, so I'm not being a knob um, by not, replying um love to talk to people but i I tend to use instagram not facebook so i'd be very very pleased to uh speak to you on instagram follow me get me up over a thousand but yeah i don't i don't really use facebook and that's me
2: fantastic um look if if people want to get in contact with either me or ty uh feel free to reach us out on Reaches Facebook, uh, for the most part, or on Instagram. Um, I'm sure our, our links will be around somewhere. Right. Otherwise, Google us; it's not too hard to find. I've got a, uh, that's, we've got a surname that's quite distinctive, so it's it's pretty easy to find us. Um, well,
3: or give got a call; he loves that.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> call me in <laughs> the middle of the night. Everyone else seems to. So. Um, <laughs> so yeah, look, yeah. If anyone's got any questions or anything like that. Feel free to reach out. Um, you know, we don't bite often.
0: Uh, and the so the main website is nature for you, but spelled out.
2: Yeah. So www.wildlifedemonstrations.com is the website.
0: Okay. Excellent. So, so yeah. Happy days. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. This is a long time coming. I, I love having you guys on. Love chatting with you guys. And cool. the book's fantastic. And we hope we can get more people on it.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Is is Ty your first returned guest?
1: Yes, she yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. She's also our favorite guest. Hands
3: down.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty partial to her as well.
3: He's only saying that because he hasn't had dinner yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's going to be out of a life blowing duck. <laughs>
0: That's good. It's man. That's
2: right. good. Happy days. All right, guys. Thanks well hey, for having us, guys. Thanks for having us. It's Have a good a pleasure.
1: Thanks. Thank pleasure. you very much. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye. See ya.